About a year ago, a former Seventh-Age student, James, came on this podcast to talk about his LSAT journey. How over the course of three years, he improved 30 points to a 179. At that time, he was still in the thick of applications. Today, I'm happy to be able to bring James back as a 1L at U Chicago and a Seventh Sage tutor. Hello, and welcome to the Seventh Sage Podcast. I'm JY Ping, and on today's episode, James and I will discuss five logical reasoning questions from Prep Test 90, Section 2. In so doing, we're going to showcase some good blind review techniques. Now, if you haven't taken Prep Test 90, Section 2 yet, I strongly advise that you don't listen to this episode. Save it. Spoiling the prep test won't be helpful. So make sure you take the section first and then come back to us. All right, here we go. I have 7th tutor James here with me. James, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, JY. I'm thrilled to be here. So since we spoke last, you are now a full-fledged 1L at Chicago. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm having an absolute blast there. I know people talk about how scary 1L can be, but people don't talk enough about how fun it is. <laughs> and in addition to being a 1L, you're also a tutor with us, of course, and you have students that you're working with. And you and I were just talking about how it's been okay managing schoolwork and tutoring students simultaneously. Yes, it definitely takes some time management, but there's no reason that you could not do all of the work of a 1L and tutor on the side and still have quality of life. Nice. So today, I wanted to do something a bit different with you, which is to discuss actual LR questions. So I picked out five questions from Prep Test 90, Section 2, and this is a very recent prep test. And we're just going to talk about five questions of varying difficulty. You know, some of them are a bit harder than others, some of them a bit easier. But let's just dive in to these questions in order, in the order in which they appear. So the first question we're going to look at is question 10 from, again, this is Prep Test 90, Section 2. And and I'll read the question stem, I'll read the stimulus, and then you and I can discuss it. Absolutely. Sounds good to me. Question 10 says the historian's argument is most vulnerable to criticism on the grounds that it what? It does something, right? So here, let's take a look at the historian's argument. In the 14th and 15th centuries, the Swahili civilization of East Africa built tombs with large pillars and paneled facades. Such structures are widespread among the Oromo people of Somalia and Kenya, but are unknown among any other people with whom the Swahili civilization had contact. This indicates that the Swahili culture was, to some extent, influenced by Oromo culture. Okay, so that's the argument. What is your initial reaction, James, when you, when you get an argument like this? So typically when I see an argument that takes some tangentially, some, some sort of structure that's at least relatively similar to this, I end up sitting back and scratching my head a little bit because... The facts seem to set up a scenario in which there are three or four different plausible roads we could go down as far as a hypothesis that would explain how we got these facts. But then without giving us any other premises, the argument basically just plucks one of those conclusions out and says, this is the one that it's going to be. And because I have no other reasons to believe that conclusion, I sort of sit back a little confused. Because this is a flaw question specifically, I do use your method from the core curriculum, that two-step method for dealing with answer choices, and I find that to be particularly helpful. 
Okay, great. So let's dig in a bit more with the stimulus. So the conclusion says that this indicates that Swahili culture was, to some extent, influenced by Oromo culture. So this is the hypothesis, right? They are hypothesizing, the historians hypothesizing that Swahili was influenced by Oromo. And you're saying, maybe this is one possible hypothesis, explanation of what's going on, of the phenomenon that we just read, but it's not the only one. So let me rehash the phenomenon again, and then you can talk about like what you think might be the other one. So again, here's the phenomenon. In the 14th, 15th centuries, we have Swahili civilization build tombs with large pillars, panel facades. That's a very particular kind of tomb with these particular features of large pillars and panel uh, facades. And the historian is telling us that these structures are widespread among the Ormo people, a different group of people, not Swahili, a different group. But it's also unknown among any other people with whom the Swahili civilization had contact. So basically, the phenomenon is that the Swahili civilization had this very specific looking kind of tomb. And then this Ormo people also had this specific kind of looking tomb. And then all the rest of the peoples that the Swahili had contact with didn't have this tomb. That's the complete set of facts that we have. That's the phenomenon. And so the explanation the historian proposes that, oh, I know what's going on. The Swahili learned it from the Oromo or was influenced by the Oromo. So, okay, I mean, maybe. Or what other stories can you tell? The big other story that sticks out to me is what if it was the Oromo that was influenced by the Swahili culture? That seems just as likely as far as we know based on these facts. And when I first read this question, I got a sense of deja vu too, because I want to say there was a question from a PT in the 60s dealing with, I think it was authors coming up with some new idea for a book and talking about plagiarism. It's like A and B both came up with this really interesting idea. It's very unlikely that they came up with it each totally independently. And then therefore, we're going to conclude that A influenced B. Well, why not the other way around? You have to at least address that possibility. Right. Very good. Yeah. No, this is spot on. This is exactly what we aim for when we teach students these questions is not just to understand this question, but also to make connections with previous questions. So in some ways to generalize away from the particular facts of this question to see how this is just a recurring type, recurring kind of logic that they're using. And here in probably the most abstract way that we can frame this particular question is you have these two potential sources of some information, two sources of some information. Both of these sources came up with it, and we're trying to figure out which one is the original source, which one's the original source. So it could be that, you know, like without any more facts, you could say that both did independently come up with it. So that's one hypothesis. You could say A came up with it and B learned it from A, or you could say B came up with it and A learned it from B. So there we've uh, sketched out three hypotheses. In the question that you just mentioned from Prep Test 60, but don't quote us, <laughs> the hypothesis that they both independently came up with it was ruled out in the stimulus because the stimulus says something like it's unlikely they both independently came up with it. Okay, fine. So that's ruled out, but we're still left with two other hypotheses. And then the conclusion reaches one of them, favors one of them without giving us any reasons. Here, I don't think we can rule out the independent hypothesis, right? I agree. I don't see anything that allows us to rule out the independent hypothesis. I think maybe you could make some sort of argument that it's slightly less likely just because as you pointed out, having these large pillars and paneled facades seems very intricate. Yeah, and kind of particular. So if they independently came up with it, you'd expect it to be like, it'd just be weird if they just happened to be exactly the same. Yeah, exactly. So it's definitely not something we could say is 
a must-be-false or something, but I would just be surprised if that was the actual reason rather than one of these cultures influencing the other. Right, right. Very good. Yeah, you're right. We cannot say, oh, this hypothesis is absolutely precluded. It must be false. But I think just knowing what we know about what we're talking about here, which is cultures, architectural styles, and how they are cultures that had contact they had contacts, so they had cultural exchanges. So those facts mitigate against that particular hypothesis, demote the likelihood of that hypothesis, so that we perhaps should consider the more viable alternative hypothesis is the one where, hey, are you sure it's the Swahili that learned from the Oromo and not the other way around, right? Maybe the Oromo learned from the Swahili. So you got you to sweep that hypothesis away before you can reach your conclusion. So I think that is the major vulnerability of the reasoning in this particular argument. I agree. I absolutely agree. And I think that your point that you made just a couple of minutes ago about how we want people to be able to make connections with other questions is really well taken. That's something that I go over very, very frequently with my students. I'll ask them to do basically what you and I just did is take this argument and recast this argument in its most abstract form and just give that to me. And when you can start seeing these arguments in their most abstract form, you start realizing how incredibly repetitive these questions are. And once you realize that, they start going by so much easier. Yeah. Absolutely. That is the key to unlocking logical reasoning. And you do this with the stimulus. You see that correct answers, obviously, have repetitive forms, uh, fit into repetitive forms as well. I sometimes say cookie cutter to capture that idea. But, you know, wrong answers also fit into uh, cookie cutter shapes as well. So here, let's continue and look at the correct answer first, which is answer choice E. And then we'll look at the, we're not going to cover all the answers, but we'll look at E and then we'll look at D, which is the super attractive wrong answer. So E says, the historian's arguments vulnerable criticism on the grounds that it takes for granted that the Ormo people began constructing tombs with large pillars, panel facades earlier than the Swahili civilization did. I think this is really interesting because this gets at exactly the point that you and I were just making a minute ago, but it does it in slightly different language, which is totally okay. And this is one of the, the reasons sometimes that I know a lot of students are sometimes tied to the idea of prephrasing. And prephrasing is good in theory. You just have to be very careful that what you're tied to, or at least what you're hunting for, is the abstract notion that you've arrived at, not the specific words that you're using in your mind to describe that abstract notion. That's what's going on here is we need to say that, hey, it was not the Swahili influencing the Ormo, and one way to get at that is talking about the temporal relation between these two societies and when they started constructing these really, really ornate tombs. Yep, that's exactly right. I would actually even take it one step further, what you said about the danger of prephrasing. I hate saying that word. <laughs> I tend to say, like, just kind of, you know, anticipating what the answer choice might say. But I think sometimes it's about getting the formulation, getting the specific way that the answer is phrased. Other times, it's kind of level separated. You and I were talking about, hey, we see the weakness in this argument in that the argument just kind of forgot about another competing hypothesis. The argument is weak because it failed to engage with the real hypothesis that maybe the Oromo learned from the Swahili. That's the level at which we said this argument was weak, was at the level of an alternative competing hypothesis that it forgot. 
E, the correct answer, deals with this at a different level. E says that it takes for granted some temporal relationship. See, the way that this fits in is that both hypotheses, either the Ormo learned from the Swahili or the Swahili learned from the Ormo, depending on which hypothesis you sign on to, it has different implications, different factual implications for who did what, when, and first and second, right? If you sign on to the first hypothesis, then one civilization did it first. If you sign on to the second hypothesis, then by necessity, the, you know, the other civilization had to have done it first. And so what this answer choice is doing is that it's getting at the hypothesis by talking about the necessary implications of that hypothesis. So that's why it says the argument is weak, because it assumes that the Oromo constructed the tombs before the Swahili did. That's exactly it. I mean, the hypothesis in the conclusion is that Swahili learned from the Oromo. Well, okay, if that's the hypothesis you're signing on to, you are assuming that the Oromo was there first. They did it first, and then the Swahili learned it. But that's an unwarranted assumption precisely because there's no information telling us that. And the fact that there was no information telling us who did it first is why you and I were like, wait a second, how do you know it wasn't the other way around? How do you, how do you know the Oromos weren't the ones learning from the Swahili, right? So I think Esther Choice did something really interesting with a pattern that we tend to see on an easier question. E wouldn't have said that. On an easier question, E would have been like, oh, the argument is vulnerable criticism because it failed to preclude a viable alternative hypothesis. And that would have been the end of it. Exactly, exactly. I absolutely agree with all of that. You said it fantastically well. <laughs> Thanks. Let's also look at D, because D is such a good, attractive answer. And it's so good because, I mean, look at the language of D. D says the argument's vulnerable criticism on the grounds that it takes for granted that there was no third civilization responsible for creating first tombs of the kind found in both Ormo and Swahili. Meaning like, hey, you just kind of assume that there wasn't some third civilization that was prior to both Swahili and Oromo and from which those civilizations learn how to build these tombs. I find D to be more appealing than E for the reason that we already talked about, which is why E was subtle. E didn't speak the language of alternative hypotheses. D speaks the language of alternative hypotheses. And D is talking about it in a way that you and I hadn't anticipated. You and I didn't say, wait a second, what if there's some third civilization from which both the Oromo and the Swahili were students of? That's what D is presenting to us. Isn't that right? Isn't that the right answer? Isn't that why the argument's vulnerable? I think that's a, a really, really interesting point you bring up, because you're right. This shows how the LSAT writers are learning clearly what LSAT prep courses are teaching. <laughs> because <laughs> yep. you're right. This is absolutely a, or I should say, it's trying to be something very, very close to what would be an excellent alternative hypothesis, a great way to say, hey, an argument's flawed. It's just that this answer choice is doing a few things wrong in such a way that it's not actually what it appears to be. And this is something that comes up a lot. One of the things that I go over with my students is reading answer choices, particularly in LR, as a set of constituent elements rather than reading them as a whole. And I, I think of it, I want to say it was Cambridge that did the study that shows that if you have a word and have the first and last letter correct, you can scramble all of the letters inside it, and your brain will just put it together. It knows what it's supposed to read. And I think the same thing is going on here. We unfortunately read in order to make sense of what we read. So we fill in the little gaps. We unscramble the scrambled letters. And no, you need to read each letter individually in the analogy and see that, hey, all of these middle letters are wrong. I can't just <laughs> see it as a whole and have my brain tell me it's okay. 
Yeah, I think in this, so in the analogy for answer choice D, this, I suppose it could have been the correct answer. D could have been the correct answer. Had the original argument truly been vulnerable to a hypothesis of this type, had the factual setup, had the phenomenon been amenable to an alternative explanation, hey, you know, Swahili, Oromo, you know, you guys are trying to argue who's first, but both of you learned it from this third culture. That culture over there is who you owe your debt to. That's essentially what D is saying. The problem is that the facts as they were set up, the phenomenon as it was set up, already precluded that hypothesis because it already told us the Swahili had no contact with any other civilization that built this tomb. So D is kind of doing work that doesn't need to be done. If the Swahili learned from anybody, either they came up with it themselves or they learned it from somebody else. And if they learned it from somebody else, it could only have been the Ormo, because that was the only people that they had contact with that had these tombs. So even if it turned out that the Ormo weren't the originators, I mean, we don't really care because we only care about how the Swahili got to it. And the Swahili got to it via the Ormo, regardless of whether the Ormo originated or the Ormo themselves learned it from somebody else. Exactly, exactly right. If this answer choice were going to be correct, it really would have needed to have had something appended onto it along the lines of, of the kind found both in the Ormo and Swahili cultures that the Swahili culture had contact with. But as soon as you append that bit on, you realize exactly like you said, it becomes a contradiction with the stimulus. There's no way to make this answer choice right that doesn't directly conflict with the stimulus. Yeah, totally. And I love what you said about this is evidence that the test writers are adapting and evolving to the test prep companies, right, of which we are one. And I think this is why it's all the more important in the pedagogy, in the theory of the theory that you teach for how to crack LR questions, for example, it's all the more important that you get down to the fundamental reasons why answers are right and answers are wrong, which is why I hate talking about shortcuts and hand wavy explanations and rules of thumb. Oh, you know, if it's a flaw question and this causation logic, look for alternative hypothesis. I mean, you can definitely get away with that for some subset of questions, right? That approach, that rule of thumb approach will get you to the right answer. But there's a hard ceiling of how much you can improve because, well, as evidenced by question 10, if that's your heuristic, you're going to get drawn into answer choice D. That's why, like, you know, I try to always talk about these fundamental logical ideas because test writers can't ever write around those. Like the logic of causation is what it is. Scientific reasoning is what it is. Grammar is what it is. So if your explanation of why the right answers are right and the wrong answers are wrong are framed in the language of causal logic, uh, formal logic, grammar analysis, that is a framework that will serve you no matter what kind of alterations the test writers perform on these questions. That's the benefit. The downside is I think it's actually just really, it's much harder to learn that theory, right? It's much harder, but I don't know. I do feel like a lot of test prep companies try to make the LSAT sound like it's easy because they know that like that's that's good for marketing. That sells well. Oh, the LSAT's easy. Oh, you don't need to learn formal logic. Oh, you don't need to learn like causal logic. They're lying to you. It's not easy. It might be easy if you already instinctively, intuitively get it. But if you don't, there's no way around it. There are no shortcuts. You just have to learn these things. And if you learn them, things will start to make sense. Like the right answers will be right for reasons that are comprehensible and the wrong answers will be wrong for reasons that are comprehensible. And this is the kind of knowledge that is powerful, that will last, that will explain and predict future questions and answers. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that's one of the reasons why it's really important in blind review. One of the best things students can do to help themselves is to change wrong answers that trip them up, change them in a way that makes them right. And I've noticed that students who tend 
to rely on shortcuts. Basically, their first instinct in terms of changing a wrong answer is to basically just rewrite the entire thing to say exactly what the right answer says. But usually, there's more to do than that because these arguments the LSAT gives us are usually terrible. So if they're asking for a flaw, usually there's more than one flaw in the argument, and they're just going to pick out one for the right answer choice. No, if there's a wrong answer choice, grapple with it on its own terms. Don't just rewrite the right answer, actually change this to make it correct. Yeah, totally. I agree. And we kind of already did this with answer choice D, but the edit, that the change you need to make is you just need to change the stimulus a little bit. You just need to scrap that line that says, but they are unknown among any other people with whom this was Healy civilization had contact, right? If you just deleted that line, then D becomes a very viable alternative hypothesis, in which case now this question would have two right answers and the LSAT writers have to scrap this question because it's flawed. But of course, it's very well designed. But yeah, no, that's very good. And it's hard. It's painstaking. It's time consuming. It's just, it's difficult to get yourself to engage with, well, here it's causal logic, but to get yourself engaged with whatever reasoning, mode of reasoning, the particular argument is trading on. Exactly. That's exactly right. You have to get down to, and this goes back to our conversation at the beginning of this question, that's why you have to be able to see it at the structural level, because it's that structure that is going to get you the right answer over and over and over. There is just no way to get around. You need to know the fundamentals and you need to know the structure. Totally. All right, so let's move on to the next question. That's going to be question 12. And here we have a PSA question where we're going to be looking for something like a rule or something like a premise to conclusion bridge. Here the question says, which one of the following principles is valid? Most helps to justify the reasoning above. So the operative phrase in that question stem is most helps to justify the reasoning. That's setting a pretty high bar, not the highest bar that we can possibly set, which is just a straight up justify. Those we call sufficient assumption questions. But here there are just softening the language a bit. Most helps to justify. So out of the five, this is the right answer is the one that justifies the reasoning more than the others. So we call these PSA questions. They are very structurally repetitive. You have some set of facts leading to some conclusion. And what's missing is a, you can think of it as a rule or you can think of it as a premise to conclusion bridge that will get you from your premises, like carry you, metaphorically carry you from your premises over to your conclusion. So with that said, I'll read the argument and then James, you can react to it. Some of the rare pygmy bears should be moved from their native island to the neighboring island. The bears risk extinction from loss of habitat on their native island. And since the neighboring island is the only place that has a similar habitat, this move represents the only viable chance of saving these valuable animals. All right, so that's the argument. I don't know about you. I feel like to some extent, the LSAT writers might be trying to just play on our sympathies here. Because I read about like rare pygmy bears. I was like, no, oh my God, let's go save them. Let's do something. You know, <laughs> I know. I'm trying to think action. like, man, what do they look like? They must be super cute. <laughs> but it's, it, it's important, at, at least for the 35 minutes we have for this, this LSAT section, to step back and, and be a little more critical about it. And basically, we're told, you know, the bears risk extinction, they don't have any other place to go, and therefore, this move represents the only viable chance of saving these valuable animals, and because it's the only viable way to save these animals, therefore, they have to be moved. And it's difficult to articulate how much is left out there. I mean, what does that involve? Does going in there and rescuing them involve destroying the habitat of some other endangered spotted owl or something? Is it prohibitively cost expensive. There are so many other factors that have not been taken into account in the massive canyon there is between that premise and that conclusion. 
Yeah, very, very good. See, what you've done there is to write, like, if listener, you're wondering, wait, why did James start talking about owls? The stimulus didn't mention owls. Why did James talk about, like, environmental damage in some other way? The stimulus didn't talk about that. The reason is because the conclusion is a prescriptive conclusion. It says some of the pygmy bears should be moved from their native island to the neighboring island, whereas the premises only are descriptive. The premises are just, I mean, let's examine the premises again. The bear risk extinction. That's just a fact. They risk extinction. Why? From loss of habitat. Again, just a fact. Next premise, a neighboring island is the only place a similar habitat. Again, just a fact. You don't find any similar habitats anywhere else. It's just in the neighboring island. And this move represents the only viable chance of saving the value. But again, just a fact. Like, this is the only card we have to play. Like, these are all descriptive facts. How do these descriptive facts support the prescriptive conclusion? At present, they don't do it very well, which is another way of saying there's a big gap in this argument. And James was, I think you were just exploiting that gap by saying, listen, are there other facts that you haven't considered? For example, what if the neighboring, I think what, what were you saying, the neighboring island like were home to owls that were also in danger? Now, what if the pygmy bears and the owls, you know, will end up like fighting with over half of that, right? <laughs> or what if like, what is the cost of moving them? Do we have to pour like a billion dollars to, to move the pygmy bears? Is that worth it? Like, can we spend that billion dollars elsewhere? See, these are all things that are legitimate to bring up because the argument has this descriptive facts, therefore prescriptive conclusion without a descriptive prescriptive bridge. Once we supply the descriptive prescriptive bridge, then James, all your concerns go away. If we can say, and here we are putting on our PSA rule finding hats because we've done this so many times, we kind of automatically know the bridge building mode is to say, if fact one and two and three are true, then we should fill in with a conclusion. We should move the pygmy bears. There we have our descriptive prescriptive bridge. There we have what I like to call a rule. And then with that, the premises trigger the rule, are allowing us to draw the prescriptive conclusion. So then the thing you said about Alice, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. The facts are A, B, C. And then I have my rule. My rule says if A and B and C, then I got to move the pygmy bears. I should move the pygmy bears. Therefore, I conclude I should move the pygmy bears. I don't care about the Alice. I don't care about the other stuff. Presumably, the rule already took that into account. But before you get the rule, before you have the bridge, all you have is a gaping hole in the argument. So that's the following up on what we were talking about from the last question. That's the recurring pattern in these PSA questions and the PSA questions that ask you to find a rule or find a build a premise to conclusion bridge. So I don't know if you have anything to say to add on to that, James, but I want to talk about in this question, three answers because the selection was split according to analytics across B, C, and E. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to dive into those. The the only thing that I would add is that just referencing again our conversation from the last question about repetition, this is an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly common thing for the LSAT to do, to give you a set of descriptive premises and then conclude something prescriptive. And that's just, that's never okay. You can never take a set of is statements and conclude an ought statement from them. Yeah, unless you have a bridge, unless you have an is ought bridge. Yes, yes. Sorry, unless you have a bridge like the right answer choice is going to give us. But but in the framework this question has given us, you can't do that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. In this framework, which is typically how you'll find this descriptive prescriptive gap isn't exclusive to PSA questions. Sometimes you'll find it in flaw questions. Sometimes you'll find it in weakening questions. But it does show up a lot in PSA questions. So it's, you know, something definitely you want to watch out for. Let's take a look at, so analytics says that this is a pretty tough question with a lot of people choosing between B, C, and E. So let's look at C first. Okay, and spoiler, C is the correct answer. C says, if a species is in danger of extinction, whatever is most likely to prevent the extinction should be undertaken. 
This is doing exactly what you just described, where it's telling us in a sufficient condition that the factual predicate in our stimulus is satisfied. Our set of facts, A, B, and C, established, and when those facts are established, there's something we should do, and that something is the thing the conclusion is talking about. So we're being told in our sufficient condition, if a species is in danger of extinction, check, we know pygmy bears are in danger of extinction. Can you use your, you've been in law school for like several months now, can you like throw some law school jargon at us? Oh, good grief. Yes. And that... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it'd be interesting for our listeners right now to, you know, stuck in studying LSAT mode to realize that, hey, this is actually quite analogous and quite similar to the kind of things you're going to be doing in law school. Answer choice C is, I mean, okay, it's not a law, but like it is structurally analogous to a law. If you were in law school and you were getting cold called, I think you might want to use the word element. Yes. Absolutely. In fact, as I mentioned, I'm in statutory interpretation right now, and this is literally what we do three days a week every week. Statutes are written exactly like this. If you have X grams of LSD, then you get X level of sentence and just do that over and over and over. In fact, I just read a case for class the other day where the opinion was parsing an old opinion, an old precedent, and made the point that the lower court misapplied the rule literally because they interpreted a necessary condition as a sufficient condition. And wow, shame. I know. It's it's astounding. <laughs> this LSAT stuff, it really will help you in law school. This is not a set of skills that you will learn and then forget. Yeah. So let's have you put on your one out hat. We would call that first sufficient condition, a species is in danger of extinction, an element, an element of the law that needs to be triggered, that needs to be satisfied. And in the facts of our case, quote unquote, is it triggered? Is it satisfied? It is. We do have a species that we have information about, the pygmy bears. And the information that we have about those pygmy bears tells us that they are, in fact, in danger of extinction. So we have satisfied that element. Yeah, we have. And quite explicitly, this is where you don't even have to do any thinking here. You just need to read, the, they say the bears risk extinction, right? And they go into details about why. But like, this is just an explicit fact. This is much simpler than the kind of stuff you have to engage with in your law school class. Because in the law school class, they would never give you an issue like this. They would give you facts that where you have to make an argument. They'll tell you like, oh, the pygmy bear numbers used to measure 50. Now they measure 35. And then they tell you some other facts. And then you have to be like, I got to make an argument that these facts amount to the t pygmy bears risking extinction or in a more serious, I, I, I don't know, I guess in statutory interpretation, you might have to deal with like environmental regulations, which which does talk about that. But I'm thinking more of the, you know, your canonical one L classes like crim law, some actor behaved this way, did this thing. And you'd be like, well, these things get you pretty close to intent which is an element in whatever law. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. The point's well taken that when you get to law school, it's the same exercise, but everything is going to be much more ambiguous. You know, yeah, there, there yeah. won't be one clear right answer that definitely is triggered. You can make an argument that it triggers. You can make an argument that it fails. Exactly, exactly. But here, thankfully, it does fully trigger for us. We know we have a species. We know it is at risk of extinction. It is in danger of extinction. And once we satisfy that initial condition, we know that whatever is most likely, that language is astoundingly broad, of the entire set of events that could be taken in this universe or any other, <laughs> the one that is the absolute most likely, if we have to burn down all of the other islands to make these pygmy bears survive, that's what we've got to do. And we're told here what that action is. What's most likely to save these pygmy bears? Move them to the other island. Well, okay, this is perfect then. Now we know what we have to do. 
Yeah, we got it. So one other, oh man, so many things I want to respond to, but like, I guess the first thing I want to respond to relevant to this question is that unlike that first condition of, of distinction, which is just explicit from the facts, the second condition, I mean, it's it's a little more on the implied end. You might have to make a tiny little argument because they don't explicitly say moving them to the other island is the most likely uh, action to prevent. What they do say is that it's the only card we have to play. This is the only move we have. It's the only viable chance. Well, by virtue of being the only card we have to play, that's what satisfies it being the most likely because you don't have any other options, right? All your other options, just watch them go extinct. But anyway, that's a little detail. But yeah, you fit the facts into this rule. You spit out this conclusion, this consequence that, hey, you should take that action, which in this case is move the bears, which is why C is so good. C is so good. The other thing I wanted to say is that I don't think you'll get actually see a law like this precisely because what you said about how you described this as being astoundingly broad. It's just too much. It's too simplistic. In the real world, of course, you have to consider other things. You're not going to get something like this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are, and all the listeners will get to this when you get to law school, there are laws that effectively tell all the agencies how to make their own rules. And the, the laws that tell the agencies how to make their rules basically say you can't make rules like this. It's too broad. <laughs> it's, it's arbitrary and capricious. Like this would probably, this, you could not make this a rule even if you wanted to. Fun stuff to look forward to in law school. <laughs> All right, but let's stay on task and let's look at the two attractive wrong answers, starting with B, which is very attractive. It says, rare animals should not be moved from one habitat to another unless these habitats are similar to one another. When I read this, the thing that just lights up in neon to me is the unless. And I can tell right away that's our group three logical indicator. So we're going to negate sufficient. Obviously, as you know, we can do this Either way, we can make either element sufficient. Because we already have a not, I want to use this to negate the first half, just because now we can say the entire thing in, in the positive. So we apply the unless to the first half. The nots cancel each other out, so it becomes if rare animals should be moved from one habitat to another, then those habitats are similar to one another. Right. Or another way you can think of it is rare animals should be moved from one habitat to another only if the habitats are similar. Or another way you can think of it is that it's a requirement that the habitats are similar in order for you to move rare animals from one habitat to another. So all three framings are saying the same thing, just from slightly different angles. Exactly. Exactly. And the problem with this is it gets the logic backwards. We satisfy our necessary condition. We're told in the fourth and fifth line of the stimulus, that this neighboring island has a similar habitat. Great. Necessary condition satisfied. But so what? When the necessary condition satisfied, the rule just falls away. There isn't anything else for us to do. Yeah, that's right. It's incapable of delivering the result that we want. This is the kind of rule that is setting up. You know, again, I'm going to throw the law school hat back on, back on you. When you read judicial opinions and they, they lay out these conditions, I mean, on the LSAT too, you get a sense of where the judge is going. Like if a judge lays out a rule that says rare animals should not be moved from one half unless the habitats are similar to one another, you are fully expecting the judge to then fail this condition. Say, hey, in this instance, look, you know, this is a principle of well-established law tracing all the way back to England in the 15 whatevers. And these two habitats are not similar. Therefore, you messed up. You shouldn't have moved them. That's where you expect the argument to go because that's the direction that a principle like this, a rule like this, a bridge like this is capable of supporting. It is incapable of supporting the conclusion that you should move rare animals from 
one habitat another. I mean, it's incapable of supporting that as long as you don't make a sufficiency necessity error, as long as you don't make a logical mistake. But yeah, this is a super repetitive wrong answer in PSA. I'm not going to say every single PSA, but I will say like 80 plus percent of PSA questions have an answer where they get the logic flipped around. Exactly. Because that's that's really probably all that makes this answer choice wrong. If you put those elements on the, the opposite sides of the arrow from which they are now, yep. it would be good. It wouldn't be it a would sufficient be assumption, but it would qualify as a PSA. It, it would be pretty strong. Yeah, I mean, like, if it's said, if it has said, if the habitats are similar, then rare animals should be moved from one habitat to another. I mean, it'd be a little weird because, like, wait, why are we moving them? It doesn't, it kind of doesn't even get to that. But it'll be far better than the current version because in our stimulus, the facts do trigger. The habitats are similar. So the facts trigger this condition, trigger this element. So that yields the consequence that rare animals should be moved from one habitat to another. But of course, the logic here is flipped, is wrong. So no good. No good for B. Such a shame. <laughs> uh, let's look at E, which is also a wrong answer, but also a very attractive wrong answer. So here we go. E says, if an animal's original habitat is in danger of being lost, it is permissible to try to find a new habitat for the animal. So I was so excited reading this because I thought at first it's going where I need it to go. It's telling me a sufficient condition that it looks like we can trigger. Maybe we don't know for sure if the habitat's in danger of being lost. I mean, it says, I mean, see, this is where you're getting into statutory interpretation, right? Or interpretation work. Because what it says that bear risk extinction from what? From loss of habitat on their native island. Meaning, one thing we can say for sure is that something is happening bad to their habitat. It's shrinking, loss of habitat. But like, what does loss of habitat mean? Loss of habitat, I mean, I think you can't even argue against loss of habitat, meaning at least it has to mean that it's shrinking or, or it's de degrading in some way. It's worsening in some way. And I think you're sensing that E uses different, slightly different language. If an animal's original habitat is in danger of being lost. Here it's like, does that really mean the same thing? Lost versus lost? One way to interpret E is to say, oh, uh, for this element to trigger, the, the original habitat has to disappear completely, 100%, right? Because that's what lost means. Another way to interpret E is like, well, no, I think if it's lost by 30%, that's enough to constitute lost. And this is where you get into legal arguments. Lawyers fight with each other back and forth on terminology like this all the time. For the LSAT, it's, you can probably just hand wave this. You can probably just paper this over, right? Like, okay, loss of habitat triggers lost. Let's keep going because there are bigger fish to fry. There is a far more glaring error in E. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Lost, lost, either way for the purposes of a PSA question, it works. So yeah, as I'm reading it, I'm excited. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm pretty sure we can trigger the sufficient condition. And then we just run right off a cliff. It says, it is permissible. And literally, as soon as I read the word permissible, I'm not even sure if I need to read the rest of it. I'm skeptical that there is anything this answer choice could say to, to save to itself. To rehabilitate. Now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because per permissible is just, I mean, what do you want? You don't want permissible, right? What do you want? We need to say it is obligatory. That would be good. It is obligatory. One ought to try to find a new habitat. All you're telling me right now is I'm allowed to, like, I won't be arrested if I go try to say <laughs> the thing there. It's like, well, fantastic. There's a lot of things I won't be arrested for, but I also probably shouldn't do. So this just isn't helping me. Yeah, that's right. This is also a recurring kind of wrong answer where the bridge starts at the right location. You're building the bridge from your premise to your conclusion. This bridge is correctly built from your premise because, you know, as we said, the premises trigger it. The problem is that it took you not nearly far enough. It took you like a little bit of the way towards the conclusion. We needed to get to, oh, we should move them. It is obligatory to move them. Those are good locations that we want to land on. E takes us halfway and drops us in the river. Exactly, yeah. I, I'm just imagining like the Golden Gate Bridge, but it just stops 
halfway. Yeah. yeah, permissible isn't nearly powerful enough. We needed to take us all the way to should. Again, such a shame. Great. I think that was a really good discussion of this question. I mean, let's, we're not going to, just given the format, we're not going to be able to talk about all of the answers, but let's keep going. We have three other questions. Next question is question 17, which is a necessary assumption question. So this one says, which one of the following is assumption required by the argument? Okay. Necessary assumption. Necessary assumption question, similar to the previous question, is all within the strengthening superset of questions. So strengthening superset has a few subsets. Necessary assumption is one of them. PS is one of them. A sufficient assumption is one of them. Of course, strengthening itself is one of them. So necessary assumption tends to be weak, but not always, not always weak, tends to be weak. But here's the argument. To establish a human colony on Mars would involve assembling tremendous quantities of basic materials at the site of the colony. But because the costs of transporting such materials through space would be so high, it will not be economically feasible to colonize Mars. My reaction here is, is almost the same as it was for the first question that we did, question 10, in that it seems like the LSAT here has given us a set of facts that put us at a, a crossroads where there's a couple of different directions we could go, and then just out of the ether, this claw comes down and just picks one of them and says, and now this is our conclusion. But I don't have facts to support that. I don't have anything to get me from the premises that I was given to this conclusion that you want me to draw now. Okay, well, let me play devil's advocate here. So let's say that I'm someone who just read this argument. I'm like, yeah, right? It wouldn't be economically feasible to colonize Mars because you just told me, your facts just told me that, you know, to establish a human colony, you require a tremendous quantities of basic materials to be assembled, right? I'm thinking, what do they need? At least shelter. You need shelter. You need some sort of food production. You need energy production, right? Of course, you need to assemble tons of things. And the cost of transporting materials through space is so incredibly high. I mean, the conclusion is saying it's impossible. The conclusion is saying it's physically impossible to colonize Mars. It's saying it's economically not feasible to colonize Mars. Isn't that a good argument? So it's not because the argument is putting so much weight on, it's putting all of the weight, in fact, on the costs of transporting such materials through space. But now what's wrong with that? Why do we need to do that? It's totally unclear to me why that's something we need because to do. Because it's Mars. How do we get stuff to space if through, to Mars if it's not through transporting through space? There are any number of possibilities. I mean, the most basic one would be just grow, like, have these people never seen The Martian? I mean, if, if Matt Damon can grow all of these potatoes on Mars, you know, we can do it too. This is not a problem. Right. Yeah. Let's not forget Mars is an entire planet. And what is a planet? A planet is a huge collection of atoms. So there's stuff already on Mars and it is just unclear whether the stuff that's already on Mars is all we need or if we actually need to transport. Let's just take a very simple example of water. Basic necessity. You have to have water. Must we transport water through space to Mars or is there already water in some form on Mars? Or if not, is there the constituent elements of water such that we can extract and synthesize synthesize water? If the answer is yes to either of those questions, then you don't need to transport water through space. So that's the issue here. Right, right, exactly. Without getting too much back into statutory interpretation, that's exactly <laughs> right. We, yeah, yeah. we know that there are, at the very least, one other alternative to transporting this stuff through space. Right. Let's now, again, look at, here I want to look at three answers as well, the correct answer and two trap answers. Starting with answer choice E, which says Mars is not a practical source of the basic materials required for establishing human habitation there. Okay, so that's one answer. Let's hold that in our minds. Mars is not a practical source of the basic materials required for establishing human habitation there. The next answer is 
B, which says the cost of transporting basic materials through space is not expected to decrease to get cheaper in the near future. And then lastly, A says only if the cost of transporting materials from Earth to Mars decreases will human habitation be established on Mars. So all three answers are kind of attractive. They all kind of talk around the idea of like where the materials are available. E talks about where the materials are available. And A and B are talking about the cost, because ultimately we are talking about cost of transporting material through space, therefore not economically feasible. Well, doesn't that assume that the cost won't quickly fall to zero? You're making your argument based on the cost today. Doesn't your argument assume that the cost either stays the same or increases? So what if the cost did fall rapidly? So what do we do? How do we, how do we handle these three different answers? In broad terms, when I'm dealing with necessary assumption questions, I tend to read through the answer choices first as if it's a must-be-true question, although there are some philosophical differences between the two. Like you mentioned earlier, for the purposes of the LSAT, you can kind of hand wave and, and do a first pass like they're the same. Anything left over after that, I typically use the negation trick for. Mm, okay. Which one of these answer choices would you like to start with? Why don't we start with B first? B says the cost of transporting basic materials through space is not expected to decrease in the near future. Must this be true? Must this be an assumption for the argument? Starting with looking at this as if it were a must be true, this is not going to quite work for me. And it, it actually hurts a little bit because there are several levels at which this answer choice is wrong. <laughs> the main one, or I shouldn't say the main one, the first one to address is that verb expected. The cost of transporting is not expected to decrease in the near future. <laughs> I don't really care all that much what's expected going back to, and again, this just goes to that point of how repetitive these errors are. That very last question, when we're talking about descriptive premises, that's what we have here in our stimulus. We're being told it will not be economically feasible to colonize Mars. Even if we assume it's not expected to decrease, okay, maybe it actually does decrease though. What's expected is really not relevant. What's actually going to happen is the thing that's potentially relevant. Great, great. And James, if let me know if I'm projecting here, but you've taken CRIM already, right? Yes. Do you still remember in CRIM, you know, these different levels of guilty mind, these different mental states that you're trained to be very sensitive to? Do you recall some of them? Yes, absolutely. There's you know, negligence, purpose, all of that different stuff. And there's yeah. intent, there's premeditation. In CRIM, you are just, you're trained to be sensitive to different types of mental states. So when you see an answer like B, you realize that this answer is speaking of the level of a mental state as opposed to the level of a fact, like a ground level fact. Will the cost increase or decrease? That's not what B is talking about. B is talking about a mental state. Will people expect the cost to increase and decrease, right? So that kind of sensitivity is incredibly relevant, obviously on the outside. But in law school, it gets kicked up another notch because it's not just you have to recognize the difference between between claims about facts, will cost increase or decrease, versus claims about expectations of those facts. In law school, in crim law, you have to further make fine distinctions about what kind of expectations, reasonable expectations, unreasonable expectations, expectations that could have been reasonably formed versus ones that couldn't have been reasonably formed, right? There are all these different gradients of mental states that you have to play around with. And LSAT is kind of, I think in this way, kind of getting you ready, helping you distinguish between these differences. I absolutely agree. The LSAT is remarkably like a training ground for law school. 
Yeah. I didn't know this until after I went to law school. When I, when I was just studying for the LSAT, I was like, oh, you know, logic games and whatever. But anyway, so I think that's totally sufficient for us to just ignore answer choice B, because we're talking about whether costs will increase or decrease, whether it will be economically feasible or not. We're not talking about anyone's expectations or anyone's guesses or anyone's whatever about. So that's why B is on this first level of analysis already irrelevant. Exactly. That word alone is enough for us to confidently eliminate answer choice B. Yeah. But even if we made B stronger, even if we got rid of the word expected, B's still terrible. So even if we changed it to say the cost of transporting basic materials through space will not decrease in the near future, it still becomes so what? So maybe the way to see this would be to apply the negation trick and see if the answer choice wrecks our argument. So what if we negated the, I know we're getting several meta levels here, if we negated the strengthened version of B, it would say the cost of transporting basic materials through space may decrease in the near future. But that does nothing to our argument. So what? Our argument is telling us the cost of transporting these materials through space are so high. They are $100 trillion more than we can afford. Okay, now they're going to decrease to only $90 trillion more than we can afford. Yeah. And that's even that's a may, right? It may not. Even that's a may. Exactly. Exactly. So even this improved version of B is not a necessary assumption. So that reveals at least another defect in this answer. And that's pretty common with wrong answers. The test writers want to be sure that the question is, how should I say, what is like a synonym for invulnerable? They're like constructing the question so that in anticipation of attacks, the test writers want to make sure that the questions are well constructed and can stand up to scrutiny. That's the reason why they often engineer multiple failure points, multiple defects in wrong answers. We can use that to our advantage because we just need to identify one of those defects and we can eliminate and move on and save time, right? It's only on blind review that you come back and you try to uncover as many of these you can. And the rationale there is, of course, the more that you uncover, the more opportunities and the quicker you might be, the more efficient you might be on a time run in identifying these recurring defects. So that's at least two for B. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that it's incredibly rare to find an answer choice with only one real fatal flaw in it. Yeah, there's Um, always like something here and then maybe another thing that's arguable. And I I don't know how much longer you want to spend on this one, but we we still have not ferreted out everything that's wrong with B. (laughs) Let's move on to A and let's save some stuff for the students to discover themselves. But let's let's talk about A here. Only if the cost of transporting material from Earth to Mars decrease, will human habitation be established on Mars? Again, this is similar to something we just saw. We have conditional logic here. I'm going to want to, when I think of this in my mind, put the sufficient condition first. So if human habitation will be established on Mars, then the cost of transporting materials from Earth to Mars will decrease. Right, right. So in other words, for human habitation to be established on Mars, it is a requirement that the cost of transporting from Earth to Mars decreases. Right, exactly. But again, it's just, it's totally unclear how this helps us do anything. Expand on that. Very much like the answer choice with the last question, where we have a sufficient condition arrowing over to a necessary condition. What we need is something in the facts that's going to show us that we trigger the sufficient condition to get over to the necessary condition. And when we have a necessary assumption question here like this, that that bridge, that arrow, is what's actually required. That's what we would see if this were a correct answer choice. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Necessary assumption question, like the metric that we, the touchstone is different. It's you're, you're not asking the question of like, hey, let's justify the reasoning, right? You're asking the question of, you know, maybe it justifies reasoning, whatever. Actually, some correct answers, necessary assumption questions are super powerful. That's fine. But that's not the reason why they're right. They're right because they're necessary. They're required. So we have to ask ourselves for answer choice A, is it required that for human habitation to be established on Mars, that the cost of transporting material from Earth to Mars drop? Is that really necessary? No, it's not. And again, the best way to see this is probably by negating the answer choice. And this is maybe a little bit trickier to negate because it's a conditional statement. But this this is one of those things that LSAT students just memorize how to do it. It'll make your yeah, life you, so you much gotta, easier. You got to drill. You got to drill. Yeah. How to, like if I tell you A, arrow B, and I tell you negate that, it's got to be like automatic. Here's a good test, right? Do it right now. Negate A, arrow B. If you came up with A, arrow not B, congratulations, because you've just identified something that you can drill on for like at least a week. Because it is not A, arrow not B. That's in fact a trap that the test writers will exploit. The proper negation of A, arrow B is A and not B, right? A and not B, yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, exactly. And if you're ever in a situation where you're not sure if you've negated correctly, you shouldn't be because you should drill and, and memorize it. But even if you're in that situation, it helps to just think of, of a situation where you know what the negation is. So if I tell you my conditional statement is all swans are white, just think of how do you prove me wrong? You prove me wrong by finding one swan that's not white. Yeah. You don't prove me wrong by saying all swans are not white. Even though that would prove me wrong, you don't need to do that. All you need to do is find one swan that isn't white. Yeah, that's right. Because at the heart of it, you're negating the relationship. In conditional claims, the claim, the central core claim is the relationship of sufficiency and necessity. When you say A or B, you're saying A is sufficient for B or B is necessary for A. And when you say no to that whole statement, you're denying that sufficiency necessity claim. You're saying A isn't sufficient for B or B isn't necessary for A. So another way to say that is that you can have A and not have B. Why? Because B is not necessary for A or A isn't sufficient for B. That's why you can have A and not have B, right? So in this case, the negation of it will be we can establish human habitation on Mars even if the cost of transporting materials from Earth to Mars doesn't decrease. And that's the negation. And that negation is entirely consistent with the argument because the argument only talks about the cost of transporting materials through space. It doesn't say the cost of transporting materials from Earth to Mars, right? So let's say that the cost of transporting materials from Earth to Mars doesn't go down. Okay, but what if it is cheaper to do the thing that we talked about earlier about like, you know, finding asteroids that have water or minerals or, or I don't know, you know, Mars Mars has moons, right? Maybe we can get the materials from the moons of Mars over to, to Mars or even just, you know, the materials on Mars itself. So all of those are reasons why negating this answer choice doesn't do anything to the argument, which is the proof that this is not a required assumption. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So that then just leaves us with answer choice E, which says Mars is not a practical source of basic materials required for establishing human habitation there. Why is this the correct answer? So at first blush, looking at it through the lens of a must be true, it, it sounds pretty good at first. So this is something that I would definitely keep around. I I think the easiest way to see why it's really correct is again to use the negation trick on it. So we can do that here by just deleting the word not. So what if we said Mars is a practical source of the basic materials required for establishing human habitation there? That is absolutely devastating for our argument. That goes exactly to what you and I were talking about at the very beginning, how the argument is just assuming there's no other way to get these materials to Mars other than to catapult them through space. And all of a sudden it's like, no, you've got water, you've got potatoes, you've got Matt Damon in his spacesuit, you have everything you need there. What, what are you talking That's all about I need. transporting? Exactly. <laughs> 
exactly. I don't even need water or potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's that's exactly right. I mean, he has it completely figured out. That's the necessary assumption. Because if it weren't true, then the whole argument falls apart. Exactly. And just one thing to flag here that I, I know a lot of students tend to have trouble with is when you're using the negation trick, the object of it is not to negate the conclusion or to somehow demonstrate that the conclusion is in fact false. Your conclusion can still be entirely true as a descriptive fact in the world. What you're looking to do with the negation trick is to show that the premises the argument has given to you are no longer capable of supporting the conclusion. Couldn't have said it better myself. That is absolutely right. With E being negated, we see that if Mars were a practical source, the basic material is required for establishing human habitation. Who, why are you telling me about cost of transporting stuff through space? You see, all of a sudden, you see how irrelevant that is, meaning it's no longer a premise. It no longer gives any support to the conclusion. But it is still an open question of whether it's economically feasible to colonize Mars. Because then you have to examine, okay, so now Mars is a practical source. Of you know, you got water, you got whatever. It still costs money to transform those materials to what you can use. So it's still possible that it's economically infeasible or that it's economically feasible. Right? So it, it really doesn't have much to do with on its own proving or, or contradicting or whatever the conclusion. It's, it's not that. It, it, the, the correct answer choice engages with the conclusion at the level of its relationship to the premise, which is just a convoluted way of saying the support structure, the reasoning. Exactly, yeah. Whether we have this answer choice in its original form or its negated form, my feelings about the conclusion haven't changed. Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. Yeah. It's yeah. just, that's not the question that we're addressing. Exactly. Thankfully, I don't see too many answers like employing that trap. Like I don't see too many answers trading on students' confusion. I mean, sometimes it does happen, but not super common. Shall we move on to the next one? Yes. Okay, question 18 is the next one we're going to do. This is a flawed descriptive weakening question. The question stem says, the reasoning in the argument is most vulnerable to criticism on the grounds that the argument what? So the argument has done something. This one is really, really tough. Analytics is very rarely, very, very rarely has percentages for the correct answer lower than the percentage for some incorrect answer. And here, this is one of them. So you know you're looking at a super curve breaker. The correct answer, I won't say which one yet, is actually, why not? I mean, if you're listening to this, I hope we haven't spoiled this test for you. I, ho I hope you've already done this and you're listening to this. But anyway, so the correct answer here is E and it's only 33%, whereas D on its own captured 41%. So you actually have more people choosing the wrong answer than the right answer. So you know there's something really hard about this question. But anyway, so it's a flawed question, and here comes the argument. Records reveal that of physical therapy patients who receive less than six weeks of treatment, about 31% show major improvement, regardless whether they were treated by a general practitioner or a specialist, and a patient who received physical therapy for a longer time, again, regardless of whether you know they went to a GP or a specialist, about 50% showed a major improvement. Therefore, the choice between seeing a specialist or a general practitioner for necessary physical therapy won't affect one's chances of major improvements. Okay, that's a lot of information. Let me just kind of, you know, especially just hearing it might be a bit overwhelming. So let me let me try to condense it first, and then, James, we can talk about this. So the, the premises say that there are records that show that for physical therapy patients, and you kind of split them into two buckets, short-term, long-term, right? Short-term is less than six weeks. Long-term is, is longer than that. So in the short-term bucket, 31% show major improvement. And what if I separate the short-term bucket into the ones who saw a specialist, maybe like a shoulder specialist or a knee specialist, versus the, again, this is all within the short-term bucket. What if I separated them into the ones who just went to a general practitioner? The premises tell us it doesn't matter. It's 
still 31% major improvement. Now let's move to a different bucket. This is now the long-term bucket. In the long-term bucket, again, 50% showed improvement. And it doesn't matter whether you're looking at the ones who went to specialists or generalists, right? So short-term bucket, 31% improvement. Long-term bucket, 50% improvement. If I try to more finely separate the buckets out into specialists versus generalists, makes no difference to these improvement numbers. Ah, that supports my conclusion that your choice of seeing a shoulder specialist versus a general generalist has no causal impact. Doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Good argument? This is a tricky one because I see how tempting it is to say yes, but no, this is a dreadful argument. <laughs> yeah, let's talk, let's talk about why. I mean, like, I, I really think this is, yeah, this is, it's really tempting, right? Doesn't it sound like they've designed a controlled study? Doesn't it sound like they have like these different groups and, you know, if these different groups don't matter, if separating into specialists versus generalists, if it has no impact on the percentage of improvement, then how can you say that that separation matters? How can you say that choice matters? Isn't it just what the conclusion says? It doesn't matter? No, it's not quite what the conclusion <laughs> says. Where this seems to go off the rails is it, it does a really nefarious sleight of hand and changes what we're talking about. In the first few lines of the stimulus, where it's giving us all of the premises, we seem to just be talking about kind of all injuries that generate the need for physical therapy. All physical therapy. We're talking about the complete pie, so to speak. And then when we get to the conclusion, it says, therefore, the choice between seeing a special or a general practitioner for necessary physical therapy. And now in the conclusion, they've gone from talking about the whole pie to taking out this one really teeny tiny sliver of the pie and acting like that's got to be completely representative of the whole. And you just can't do that. We don't know that. We don't know that the necessary physical therapy is the same as the totally unnecessary, this type of physical therapy, you just do preventative physical therapy, maybe. And if you actually stop to think about it, like that makes sense. If you were in a car accident and had your spine severed or something, and now you're learning how to walk again, you really probably want to be at a specialist rather than a general practitioner. Yeah. Whereas if you're just going to get limbered up or something, it probably doesn't matter where you go. So although this question is so nefarious, it really does fit with our intuitions. Yeah. Did you want to look at answer choice E first or the nefarious D? Ooh, maybe D first. I have a love-hate relationship with D because it sounds so good and yet it is so wildly irrelevant. And I think this, this goes to something we were discussing earlier, the idea that it's really important to read these answer choices one constituent element at a time. You do not want to just read the entire thing and, and basically go on your vibe you get from it. Because the vibe from D is very good. It sounds like something that is really important. But we go through, fails to indicate whether the number of patients surveyed who saw a general practitioner was equal to the number who saw a specialist. The reason this does not work is that word equal, because we just don't need them to be equal. Maybe the, the way to explain it is to look at what D was trying to say, what it should have said. We don't need to know that the number who saw the general practitioner and the number who saw the specialist were equal. What we need to know is that there was a sufficient number that saw the specialist and a sufficient number that saw the generalist that they're representative, that we can draw representative inferences from that data. But if it was 2 million that saw a generalist and whatever one less than 2 million is that saw a specialist, that does not hurt our argument. We have two very, very representative samples and our conclusion is just as strong or just as weak as it was before. 
Right. I think D is playing at the edges of something that could be a problem, but isn't a problem here. When you fail to indicate the number of patients surveyed who saw a GP versus a specialist, okay, first thing to notice is that it's true. It's actually descriptively accurate of the argument. The argument never told us how many people saw a general practitioner versus how many saw a specialist. But the problem is that it really didn't need to, and certainly didn't need to tell us that the number was equal. Because, you know, while equality between the two sets the, the numbers between two sets. Anytime you run an experiment, I mean, in the ideal scenario, sure, have the sets be equal. <laughs> Why not? It's just one less thing you have to worry about. But in the real world, you're almost never going to get any kind of scientific experiment where the sets are exactly equal. They don't need to be equal. They just need to be large enough so that idiosyncratic causes get filtered out and they need to be representative, right? Which is why we tend to randomly select into the sets. But equality is not a requirement. So the fact that they're not equal is therefore not putting its finger on a vulnerability. Now, I think for the correct answer, which is E, overlooks the possibility specialists and general practitioners each tend to excel at treating a different type of injury, right? So maybe I said that too fast. It's overlooking the possibility that specialists and generalists excel at treating different types of injury, which you think about it, of course, like that's why we have specialists to begin with. You know, you have a shoulder specialist because shoulder specialists excel at treating, you know, shoulder, whereas generalists excel at sort of milder, probably more general stuff. So E says that the argument overlooks this possibility. But why would it having overlooked this possibility be the weakness of the reasoning? So that would be the weakness of the reasoning for exactly that reason we were talking about before. What if the specialists are treating all of the super critical injuries for which physical therapy is required. That like you broke your back, if you don't get physical therapy in the next week, you are never going to walk again versus the you just have kind of tight hamstrings and you want to loosen them up. Right. So when you take that into account, the fact that no, it really does matter what type of injury you have when you are picking your physical therapist, picking specialist versus generalist, then all of a sudden the fact that these percentages match even if we assume that these really are representative and, and all of that stuff that we talked about with D, all of that could be true. And the conclusion still would not follow that it's not going to affect my chances of improvement whether or not I go to a specialist or a generalist. No, if I have a serious injury, I need to go to a specialist. Yeah, I think probably one way to frame what's happening here that might be clarifying for some students is to realize that the argument is acting as if the facts as described, the phenomenon as described, constituted a well-designed controlled experiment. But in reality, it's not. If this had been a well-designed controlled experiment and the results are what we're seeing, then the conclusion would follow that the choice between specialists or generalists doesn't matter. Because look, here's what a well-designed controlled experiment looks like. We're wondering, hey, you know, are these specialists, are they for real or are they just charging extra money, you know, like it's a marketing scheme. You know what? Let's run a scientific experiment and find this out. We get a bunch of people who got injured and need physical therapy. And of course, because we're collecting a large ton of people, we're going to get people who with very serious requirements for physical therapy versus people, like you said, tight hamstrings, whatever, just go stretch. Okay, fine. So we have a large collection of people with varied ailments from serious to not serious. And then here's the crucial part. You randomly assign them to specialists versus generalists so that you end up getting serious people to the generalists in roughly the same proportion as you 
you do to the specialist, serious people, the generalist, serious people, specialist, roughly same proportion. And you end up getting the mild cases, again, in same proportion to the generalist, to specialist. Now you see what happens. Forget the short-term, long-term. That's a separate thing. But even that simple experimental design is enough to ferret out whether there is a difference in the treatment. If you run this experiment and it turns out that everyone, regardless of which group you assign them to, they showed 31% improvement or 50% improvement or whatever percent improvement. As long as you show that the improvement is equal, then you can say whatever's happening, the choice between specialists and generalists doesn't have a causal impact. That's what the argument wants to be or is pretending to be. But the actual factual setup is so different. There was no random selection. How do people go to a specialist? How do people go to a general practitioner? I mean, the argument doesn't tell us, but knowing what we know about the world, you don't just randomly go see doctors, right? Like you go to your doctor who then refer you to either a general practitioner, physical therapist, or a specialist. So it is a huge self-selection process going on that decides how you end up in either of the two groups. And that selection process may have causal impact. In fact, we know it does. We know it does because, well, you know something about the medical world. You know that you go see a heart specialist when you need heart surgery. You don't just go see some general surgeon. And it's for good reasons. So the fact that even after incorporating that cause, that cause of putting you to the right person, you still end up with 31% should clue you in on the real story, which is that it does make a difference. If you sent someone that should have gone to a specialist and did in fact go to a specialist, if you had sent him to a generalist, that would have been bad for him. That would have been bad. He probably would have suffered even more. He probably wouldn't have improved this much. But this is, you know, earlier we talked about how sometimes you can't get away from just having a real understanding of the causal logic, of the type of logic. And in this question, we're seeing causal logic played out in a particular way, in a way where, you know, they're talking about experimental design. You have to understand how how to design an experiment in order to isolate the cause that you're trying to test for. And the test writers are really good at coming up with these, you know, pseudo experiments, things that look like experiments, but are not. This is a really good example. So there are a ton of, ton of questions that take this form. So if you have that frame in your mind, you can crack this question. Like we said, this question is one of the hardest curve breaker questions. You get 40, 41% of people choosing one single wrong answer versus 30, 33% choosing the right answer. But if you have that framework in mind, you can crack this question because you can, you're going to see this question as just like all the other questions that are trying to trip you up on experimental design. Exactly. And again, that experimental design, it, in general, that framework is one that comes up over and over and over on the LSAT. And there are a bunch of different types of errors that they build into those questions. The one that's going on here with random selection comes up a lot. I mean, I, I remember another question from some prep test ago about like trying to show like stretching does nothing to prevent injury. Right? Records reveal that people who stretch versus people who don't stretch end up with roughly the same proportion of injuries. So how can you say stretching does anything, right? If stretching did something, wouldn't you expect the group of stretchers to be less injured than the group of non-stretchers? Again, if the facts were presented as a random experimental design, yeah, that argument, the logic would run through. We collected a bunch of people, split them up into two groups. You stretch. I'm going to force you to stretch. You, I'm going to force you not to stretch. Now go run a marathon, come back, report injuries, injury rate about the same. Okay, well, sorry, I did that to you. But you know what? Stretching does nothing. But that is not how the setup, that's not what happened. What happened was people self-selected into stretching versus self-selected into not stretching, right? So you haven't controlled for their underlying issues. You haven't controlled for whether the people, like who stretches? Probably older people tend to stretch. Probably people who have pre-existing injuries tend to stretch. Those are all causal factors that weren't controlled for in the original description of the argument. It's exactly the same problem here. Something that looks like an experiment versus something that is not an experiment. 
Yeah, I actually remember the exact question you're talking about. And I, I remember watching the video and having all of these same thoughts like, wow, that's that's just really interesting. Yeah, you always need to make sure that when you have an argument that is drawing a conclusion from a study that you have randomly assigned all of the participants within that study. Because they could have made, I mean, they did make this question a flaw. They could also have made this question a necessary assumption question or something like that. And you could still have been looking for that exact same mistake and just phrase slightly differently. You'd have your right answer there as well. Yeah, that's right. So that's why it's so powerful to understand the reasoning framework that generates the correct answer. Because really what we're prepping you for is not just getting this question right. It's getting variants of this question right. E could have been phrased differently. But if you have that framework in place, you don't care. They can phrase it any way they want. You're going to find the right answer. D could have been phrased differently as a trap answer. Again, if you have the right framework in mind, it doesn't matter. It anticipates all of these different phrasings. On top of that, it anticipates other questions that are going to be cookie cutter cutouts of this question because it's the fundamental framework that generates all of these things. Right. And that's probably the most valuable thing is being able to not just recognize additional types of this flaw question, but to see this type of reasoning show up across the test. Yeah, yeah. And one final thing I want to say about this is that, look, I fully recognize that it's a super difficult curve breaker question. It really isn't so much like, oh, you have to get this question right. I'm not super concerned about that. What I am concerned about is you having that framework now of an experimental design and how to do it right versus the kinds of deviations that you're going to see on the test. Because I promise you, not all LR questions that take advantage of this distance between well-designed study versus poorly not even designed study, whatever it is that we just saw, not all questions are this hard. A lot of questions are much simpler. With that framework, if you have that framework, okay, maybe you might still get this question wrong. That's fine because you will also get other questions right. They're not all curve breaker questions. And I think that's important because for, for the vast majority of takers, of test takers, this is probably a good candidate for a question to just skip. But it's important to distinguish between having a complex or difficult question and a complex or difficult argument slash flaw. Here what's going on, the actual mistake the argument's making is pretty simple. It's not a, a terribly complex thing going on here. Now, like you said, it's an extremely difficult question, but the difficulty there is all of the window dressing. The underlying error is pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely difficulties built in and we didn't even cover the other three wrong answers and we're not going to, but like, you know, those are hurdles too that ramp up or ramp down the difficulty of the question. How attractive they make the wrong answers. That's independent of the logic of the argument. They can give you the same logic and give you super attractive answers. Well, that'll increase difficulty of the question. They can give you not attractive wrong answers that'll decrease difficulty of the question, right? So it is in some ways out of your control, but you can learn the frameworks that repeat on this test. And I think we've covered a bunch of them already, but let's get to the last one. And this is question 20, and it's a resolve, reconcile, explain question, but it's an accept question. So we're going to find four answers that resolve, reconcile, explain. And of course, the last answer is the answer we're going to select. So this is, once again, a framework of identifying a phenomenon and what's kind of, you know, intention about it or what needs to be explained about this phenomenon, and then coming up with hypotheses or explanations for that phenomenon. And here, because it's accept, we're going to, we're going to find four explanations. So here's the stimulus. A research psychologist used personality test to classify high school students as repressors or as sensitizers. Now, what are repressors? Well, repressors are people who repress upsetting thoughts and feelings from conscious awareness. Sensitizers are those who are especially attuned to internal states and who freely express distress. 
Okay, so repressors, sensitizers. The researchers found that compared to sensitizers, repressors are less shy, less anxious, could better tolerate frustration, has superior social skills, had higher grades, and a greater sense of self-esteem. So how do you how, how do you sign up for that? So that's the set of phenomenon, right? That's the set of facts. Now we need to come up with an explanation, right? This is interesting. Why? Repressors are what they are. Synthesizers are what they are. And then you have all these, you know, seemingly pro-social, seemingly positive attributes associated with repressors. Like, why is that? Let's come up with some explanations. So how would you approach a question like this? So a question like this, the accept ones drive me nuts because my brain just does not do that very well. Just in the way that you said, I typically forget about the accept part and I just treat it as a normal RRE question, but I'm going to find four answer choices that are actually green lights that I like that actually explain the purported paradox. And then the one answer choice that doesn't seem to work is what I'm actually going to bubble in. Great. Fantastic. Let's do that. So, okay. So before we look at the answers, let me just reiterate the facts. Once again, you got repressors on the one hand, sensitizers on the other hand. Repressors tend to be less shy, less anxious. They're better able to tolerate frustration. They have better social skills. They get better grades. They have a greater sense of self-esteem. And synthesizers are just the opposite of that. Let's look at A, which says repressors are better able than synthesizers to focus on their work and to avoid distraction. Yeah. I mean, this sounds pretty good to me, right? Yeah, (laughs) right? It's like, okay, well, that would certainly help to explain it because this gives us a causal mechanism of why repressors would have some of these attributes, like better grades, for example. Like, why would you have better grades? Well, because you're better able to focus on your work and to avoid distractions. Surely that would account for better grades, right? Which might in turn account for better self-esteem. So great. It doesn't need to be, right? Here's the key point about like about RE questions in general, but especially RRE accept questions. There is no requirement that you find a complete and robust explanation for all of of the phenomena. That's not a requirement. That's setting the bar too high. Here, I mean, look at the specific wording of the question step. Each of the following, if true, contributes to an explanation. Certainly, A contributes to an explanation, even if it doesn't completely explain the phenomenon. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think A might even be lulling us into a little bit of a false sense of security because A does such a good job of drawing the bridge that we need and getting us to a place where we can very clearly say, oh, yeah, you know, like you said, if you're getting better grades, you're almost certainly going to have higher self-esteem and be less shy, less anxious. You know, you might be, well, I don't know what kind of college you went to, might be one of the more popular kids if you're getting better grades there. (laughs) But the other answer choices, I think, definitely start getting harder. Yeah, I think they that on purpose. They gave us a really powerful one in A, and then they start giving us subtler and subtler explanations. Let's take a look at B, which says, repressors are less apt than sensitizers to alienate people by expressing their emotions. Okay, this is interesting, because, and and just to pick up on what you were just saying, all of a sudden, I could see some people almost being put off by B, because it's so much more difficult to see than A. But we don't want to compare one answer choice to another like that. Just evaluate B on its own terms. And on its own terms, this is really pretty good. If these repressors are less apt than sensitizers to alienate people by expressing their concerns, expressing their emotions. This is difficult because they're, first of all, they're not phrasing it in the positive, they're phrasing it in the negative, which makes it difficult to understand. They're also making it a comparative statement, which also makes it difficult to understand. So we've got our two groups, our repressors, our sensitizers. We are comparing them along the lines of, I don't want to say less likely to alienate, let's say more likely to make friends. Repressors, repressors win. They're more likely to make friends. 
Yeah. See, now that explains the shyness, the anxiety. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That makes sense why we have superior social skills, why we have greater self-esteem, why we have anxiety. Exactly. Yeah. Good, good, good. Okay, so that's B. Let's look at C, which says parents and other caregivers tend to reward repressors more than they reward sensitizers for academic performance and social behavior deemed desirable. So again, they make this a comparative statement. Again, we're just comparing our two groups. And what are we comparing them on now? We're comparing them on the, the level to which they get, you know, pats on the head and, and attaboys for doing good things. Yeah, from parents and caregiver. I don't know if teachers count, but like whatever, extended family. And what happens as a result of that comparison? Who wins? The repressors win. Again, the repressors are the ones that get more rewards for academic performance and, so, and, and pro-social behavior. And this makes so much sense as an explanation then. You know, if every time a sensitizer brings home an A, the parents are like, you know, whatever. But every time the repressor does, it's chocolate cake and put it on the refrigerator and all of that stuff. Of course, the repressors are going to have dramatically more incentive to keep getting those good grades, to keep demonstrating pro-social behavior and, and continuing on like that. Good. Yeah. Okay, so now let's skip the right answer and hop on to the last one, E. Sensitizers tend to focus more than repressors do on the difficulties of succeeding in their projects rather than on factors that are likely to contribute to their success. So I think this is definitely the trickiest of all of the answer choices to see. I think it's also not a coincidence that they put this as answer choice E, kind of hoping that, well, you didn't like B through D, now you're sort of panicking, maybe E's right, who knows. But again, E's actually quite good when you think about it, because we're the same comparison that we've had going on for the last three. And now it's, okay, both the sensitizers and repressors get a really, really difficult project put in front of them. And the sensitizers sit there, and basically it seems like just wallow with self-pity, you know? It's like, this is a, such a hard project, yeah, it's I'm so never going to finish, it's yeah. going to be 10 all-nighters to get to start. Yep. Exactly. The repressors, on the other hand, are like, no, I'm going to make a plan of action, I'm going to take this in bite-sized chunks, and I think it's, it's technically an assumption, but it's, I think, a very well-warranted assumption that that second approach is going to be significantly more likely to lead to success than the first approach. So again, this makes sense that repressors are going to have higher grades, better social skills, and better self-esteem. Right. Excellent. Excellent. So fits the mold, also explains. So that must leave the last answer as the correct answer choice, which means this answer does not explain. But the crucial question, of course, is why doesn't it explain? And here D says, some psychologists have hypothesized that the desire to maintain social and academic success and self-esteem strengthens repressors' tendency to repress upsetting thoughts and feelings. Yeah, this has problems. I think like some of the other answer choices we've seen, it's got problems at a couple of levels. The first one that we start off with is, is the initial language of the answer choice. Some psychologists have hypothesized. So going back to the question where we were talking about that word expect, basically the exact same thing is going on here. I mean, it's wonderful that psychologists hypothesize this. I'm sure they hypothesize a lot of things. Are they right? So is it true? That's what yeah, we care about. Exactly. I care about knowing whether this fact is accurate in the world, not whether a certain subset of psychologists believe it to be accurate. Good. Yes. That's already enough for you to be like, whatever the rest of D says, you know, some psychologists have hypothesized that and just collapsed the rest of the answer into a box. Some hypothesized this box. I mean, already I don't care because I don't know if, if it's true or not. Right? I need to open up the box, see the contents, and actually ask, like you said, is this a true description of what's actually happening in the world? I, I, just the fact that psychologists hypothesized it doesn't do much. Exactly. Yeah. 
So what if we try to improve it? What if D recognizes its defect and it tries to get better and D is like, you know what, let me try again. I'm going to scrap that bit about some psychologist hypothesis. I'm going to just straight up declare it's true. And now I'm in league with the other answers, A, B, C, and E, that, that don't try to nest what they're saying into like, oh, some scholars believe repressors are better able than sensitive, whatever. D is like, let me do that too. The desire to maintain social and academic success and self-esteem strengthens repressors' tendencies to repress upsetting thoughts and feelings. What about that? It's it's interesting. I want to say it sounds a lot better, and I think it does sound a lot better. But this goes back to what we were saying about take it bit by bit rather than just basically taking the vibe of the answer choice. Right. Because this is still not really helpful for us in terms of explaining what's going on. So if we get rid of that first bit, we have the desire to maintain social and academic success. So, okay, these repressors have that desire. It strengthens this tendency that they already have. So basically what we're told is repressors have a feedback loop. Mm -hmm. They have a desire to maintain social and academic success that contributes to wanting to repress upsetting thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. Cool, I guess. But there are a couple of pretty significant problems here. One is it's told us nothing about sensitizers. So we have no point of comparison at all. Right. We don't know if sensitizers do the same thing or if they do the opposite thing or what. Exactly. And without knowing that, we can't actually establish where the sensitizers and repressors are diverging. We can't actually hook it back into the stimulus in the way that we need to. Yes. Okay. But it's worse than that because even if we say, you know what, repressors do this, but sensitizers don't. In fact, they do the opposite, right? Okay. Even then, it's still not good because the desire to maintain social and academic success and self-esteem, what does it do? It strengthens repression tendency to repress, right? Okay. So you want to be likable. You want to be popular. You want to be successful academically. So it makes you repress. Okay. Does it work? Does it yield the results that you want? Are you now more popular? Do you have better grades? Exactly. Because the other answer choices, what they're doing is actually either explicitly stating or strongly implying strongly implying a causation or something yeah, like that. Yeah, a causal mechanism, a causal pathway that gets you to the thing that we're trying to explain. Exactly. Whereas here, it's like, okay, they want this. But again, that goes back to our previous conversation of mental states. You want this thing. Are you actually getting it, though? We just have no idea. So there are at least three different independently sufficient reasons <laughs> to eliminate D. That's right. D is, uh, D is a very well-constructed non-explanation, but that's what makes it the correct answer because it's an RRE accept question. But yeah, this is fantastic, James. This was a lot of fun for me. I hope it wasn't too much. I know, I know sometimes that this gets really abstract, especially when you're just having to listen to it. You don't have any of the visual aids that you know we would have when we explain this in, in the video format on 7Sage. But hopefully for the listeners, you were able to find something useful out of this and you know maybe take away some drills that you can start engaging in or even just some general principles of how to relate to your studies, how to relate to what it means to prep for the test. But James, any parting advice? Any parting advice? I would say one thing that I would definitely encourage students to do is in blind review, do a little bit of what JY and I were just doing there. So even if you realize that the some psychologists bit may be wrong, don't stop analyzing it. Because I can think of almost no answer choices that are wrong, that are only wrong for one reason. So keep pushing. Find out at least two. Try to find three. All of these different things that make an answer choice wrong. Really get into the mind of the test writers. And then you'll start taking the test 
as a test writer rather than as a test taker. Nice. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the more that you can see and peer into the minds of test writers, and they're giving you clues right here, right, in, in what makes an answer, how they craft right answers and wrong answers. But the more you can peer into their mind, the better you'll do, unsurprisingly, on the test. Exactly. And it's that kind of hard work. It's all the stuff we've been talking about. Diving into the structure, changing wrong answer choices to make them right, breaking down the stimulus and seeing it for the underlying scaffolding. All of that is going to give you those skills that are able to get you repeating results. Right. Couldn't agree more. And you might pay attention to the fact that this episode is well over an hour long, and we've only talked about five questions, and we didn't even talk about all the answers. Of all. I mean, for this one, we talked about all the, all the answers, but like for the other four, we talked about like two, two or three answer choices. And this is just evidence that blind reviewing, we're doing something analogous to blind reviewing, but a lot of the things that we were doing are exhibiting the kind of things you do in blind reviewing. But it takes a long time. It does take a long time, but the improvements are there to be had. It is a long process, but that's not something to resent. That's something to be embraced. Yeah, well said. Thanks so much, James. This is so much fun doing this with you. Absolutely. Thank you, JY. I've had a blast and I'd love to be back sometime. I would love to have you back. You can tell us all about statutory interpretation and <laughs> make your best argument for the difference between lost and lost. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a fantastic time. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you found that discussion helpful. If you want more in-depth analyses of these and all the other questions from PT90, we've got full video explanations on 7sage.com. We actually have a huge library of video explanations. Uh, for logical reasoning, we've got videos for every question from PT17 up to the most recently released PT. And for reading comprehension on logic games, we've got videos for every question ever released. To the best of my knowledge, that's the most complete library of video explanations of LSAT questions anywhere. Now, if you're looking for more one-on-one -on -one help, get in touch with us. We've got a great tutoring team. Uh, yes, that does include James. And we'll do a free consultation so you can get a sense of whether tutoring will be a good fit for you. And lastly, on a personal note, it's always such a joy for me to speak to former students and see how far they've come. James, if you're still listening, I am so very happy for you. And that's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time. <laughs>